morning and welcome to the Guts and Glory, SGH Gastroenterology Podcast. I'm Dylan. And I'm Ching Han. And I'm Andrew. And I'm pleased that all you listeners are able again to join us in our podcast where we provide in-depth practical discussion with our local experts from Singapore General Hospital. So today, on top of my usual co-hosts, Dylan and Ching Han, we are also very fortunate to be joined by a bunch of Yong Lulin medical students. Hi, I'm Claire, a Year 5 medical student at NUS. Hi, I'm Matthew. I'm also a Year 5 medical student at NUS. Hi, Fanny here, also a Year 5 medical student from NUS. Okay, so welcome all of you. So uh, we will be having them ask our expert today several interesting questions about the topic. But before we introduce uh, the expert today, uh, we just want to tell everyone what the topic is, which is acute liver failure. Uh, so before we even go to the case itself, so Dylan, Chinghan, when you hear this term acute liver failure, in your experience as internal medicine residents, what are your thoughts? You know, from my experience with uh, patients with acute liver failure, it's usually the development of you know, severe acute liver injury. Uh, and it's usually associated with encephalopathy and some synthetic dysfunction uh, with a deranged uh, PT or INR uh, in patients with or without pre-existing cirrhosis. So, I mean, if without, it's usually acute liver failure. Uh, with, then sometimes we call it acute or chronic liver failure as well. Uh, as to my personal experience, some of the cases that I've seen uh, usually occur as a result of either drug-induced liver injury or you know, acute hepatitis uh, B. Yeah. But uh, I, I must add a caveat that my experience is rather limited. Yeah. I think for myself, we more commonly see patients with cirrhosis, um, acute liver failure itself, I'm not as familiar with the topic. And um, to be honest, I, I don't know how fast we need to act in terms of uh, management and, and how fast patients can deteriorate. So maybe this episode can shed some light uh, on that. Great. So we have some burning questions waiting to unleash our expert today. So who do we have with us today? Uh, hi, good morning, everyone. I'm Terence, and uh, I work with the liver transplant program in Singapore General Hospital. We are currently one of two transplant programs in uh, our country, the other being located in the National University Healthcare System. And uh, I have the privilege of working on a day-to-day -day basis with the transplant physicians, transplant surgeons, transplant coordinators, and together we take care of both our pre-liver transplant patients as well as those who have successfully undergone a liver transplant and are with us for the long haul, more or less. All right, great. So, so Terence, there's a, a couple of questions we'd like to ask you, some work-related, some non-work-related ones, okay? So <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, there's, there's this um, rumor, I, I wouldn't say it's a rumor, but um, when we talk about your, your upcoming fellowship training uh, for transplantation, <laughs> I hear that it's not all about liver transplantation. Are you transplanting anything more than the liver? Uh, so there is uh, something a bit more unique uh, with my upcoming overseas fellowship uh, program. I've just uh, finished a local fellowship uh, training uh, with our, our center uh, to get accredited in uh, liver transplantation. However, it is an aspirational goal of uh, Sing Health to be able to do both intestinal and multivisceral transplantation, which is a capability that both our healthcare system and the country lack. At the present, uh, we have successfully done an intestinal transplant uh, in a pediatric setting recently, and so far she's doing well. But however, we have yet to perform one in an adult patient. So I'll be heading over to Cambridge, uh, hopefully in the next few months or so, 
to learn from the experts there as they are the largest volume center for external transplantation, not only in the UK, but also in uh, the whole of Europe. All right, so just to let the listeners know, we're reaching the realm of science fiction now, you see, we're transplanting <laughs> every single organ in the body. So we're transplanting liver, kidneys, and now the intestines. It's not going to be far away before we start transplanting the, the brain, right? So uh, moving to a non-work-related question. So, okay, so Terence has the... I, I'm not sure. I'm not so sure if this is a privilege and honor, or but he is the fittest uh, gastroenterologist <laughs> in our in our department. I think it's, it's it's not even a close competition. I think when Dylan came and rotated into our department, Dylan was giving him a run for his money. But I think uh, Terence is like, like the defending champion of uh, of of fitness in the department. So Terence. Everyone can see that there's been a huge change in, in your in your physique, shall we say, right? So can you tell the listeners, if you may, <laughs> what prompted you to, to get into this journey? Okay, uh, so this is uh, something I'm unfortunately uh, known for among my immediate friends and colleagues. Uh, just to start, about one and a half years ago, uh, on my last birthday in April 2021, I was actually morbidly obese with a BMI of 30. So it fit the you know, criteria for, for clinical obesity. Um, and it was just a combination of various push factors that finally got me to get serious about fitness and about weight loss. Uh, and basically I've learned a lot over the last one and a half years. I've learned what kind of works for me personally. And I am trying to share that with the patients that I meet on a day-to-day -day basis, especially those um, whose weight management is critical, um, such as uh, those with fatty liver disease. Uh, I know what works for me, however, it's still uh, a work in progress in trying to get to an approach that can work for each and every individual patient I work with. And sometimes there's a bit of a give and take and a compromise and a negotiation there. Yeah. And so um, we, we, all of us who have known Terence for a while, we can testify to whatever he just said. Right? And, and I think he had a choice at that point. He could either transplant himself to a new body. This, this is his, <laughs> his special skill. But he decided to choose the, the difficult journey of working, working a sweat and working his butt off to get to where he is right now. So kudos to him. Right? So, um, okay, so now moving to the topic. So Ching Han, so what do we have to, with us today in terms of the case vignette? So today we'll be talking about acute liver failure. We have with us Mr. Lee Ferdai, who is a 40-year-old man admitted via the emergency department with a one-week history of jaundice and confusion. He has no significant past medical history and was well until the recent onset of events. He's able to answer simple questions, but is otherwise disoriented. Initial lab investigations reveal a bilirubin of 170 and an ALT of 2,000. AST of 1,500, PT of 23 seconds, and APTT of 50 seconds. Um, so what is going on here, and how do we decide if someone is in acute liver failure? Okay, so when looking through this case, Vignette, uh, I feel the thing that jumps out the most, uh, the main red flags for this patient, would be the rapid onset of symptoms over the last one week. Um, whenever you have a rapid onset of jaundice, especially accompanied with confusion, um, that in itself is already extremely concerning uh, because that might portend uh, acute uh, hepatic encephalopathy. Uh, and in terms of his biochemistry, he has significantly elevated bilirubin levels of more than five times the upper limit of normal, as well as a markedly prolonged PT of more than eight seconds from refer reference times. And this implies a very significant degree of uh, impairment of the liver synthetic function. Uh, not only that, 
Uh, if you look at his race, uh, alanine transaminase and aspartate transaminase value, uh, which is in the thousands, it was a 2000 for the ALT and 1500 for the AST um, to remind our listeners. Um, it actually helps to narrow the differential diagnosis further. The magnitude of elevation of uh, the transaminases is not very helpful when the transaminases are below a thousand, but the higher they get, it actually becomes a lot easier to narrow down and be a bit more specific with regards to etiology. Namely, alcoholic liver disease, we would not really consider that in this patient due to how high the ALT and AST values are. And uh, when the ALT approaches 2000, it is also unlikely that this is autoimmune liver disease. Therefore, the main differential diagnosis uh, is primarily twofold with regards to etiology. The first would be that of uh, acute viral hepatitis. And the second would be that of a drug-induced liver injury, in particular paracetamol, which is known to cause an ALT predominant pattern of transaminase elevation. Uh, this is in contrast to other causes of drug-induced liver injury which usually cause an AST predominant pattern of transaminase elevation. So um, in this patient, the development of hepatic cephalopathy is basically the key um, with uh, diagnosing uh, whether a patient is in ALF or not. Uh, Dylan used a term uh, before this, uh, he mentioned severe acute liver injury, and this is usually defined as an INR of more than 1.5, as well as hyperbilirubinemia. So if a patient fulfills those biochemical uh, criteria, we call them as a severe acute liver injury. However, again, it is the development of hepatic encephalopathy that really is uh, key to the diagnosis of acute liver failure, uh, not just severe acute liver injury. So Terence, can you just um, clarify again for the listeners who may have missed it and what you said, but what is the definition of acute liver failure? So if, if how, do, how does a a physician recognize that this person has these constellation of laboratory of physical examination findings, and then we call that uh, acute liver failure. Okay, so uh, it's both a biochemical as well as a clinical diagnosis. Biochemical in that you are looking for a, a raised uh, INR of more than 1.5. You're also looking for hyperbilirubinemia, So that's two. And secondly, uh, and clinically, you'll be looking for the development of hepatic encephalopathy of any grade. Um, oftentimes, early uh, grade uh, hepatic encephalopathy is a bit hard to diagnose. But once the patient starts having an overt uh, asterixis or liver flap, then it becomes more obvious. Uh, and then you start to uh, consider and worry about the diagnosis of acute liver failure. If I may ask... Um, you know, what's the difference between acute liver failure and acute on chronic liver failure? And you know, do their approaches and management differ? So Terence, just may I add to what question that Dylan asked? I think this is a very common question these days because the terminologies are very confusing. Mm -hmm. right? So someone who has pre-existing liver disease, people uh, will just call it acute or chronic liver failure. And then someone who has no pre-existing liver disease, we call it acute liver failure. But is it just that? Uh, because it, I guess it really depends on whether we know the person has any liver disease, but what if we just don't know? So, so what's the difference between these two terms, and this, uh, these entities? I would just start by saying that acute uh, or chronic liver failure is a topic that's very contentious, even within the realm of hepatologists talking to each other. Uh, if you are in the field, you will know that the different geographical regions have different definitions of acute or chronic liver failure. So I'm talking about the Asia-Pacific region versus 
uh, the European uh, healthcare systems versus the American healthcare systems. They each have their own individual uh, definitions of acute liver failure, of acute and chronic liver failure, sorry. They also have their own ways of stratifying severity of acute or chronic liver failure. So when experts, when even the experts cannot agree, uh, I think it's a little bit contentious uh, to try to arrive at a single universal definition. But maybe philosophically speaking, um, if we take a step back, most of the major societies do agree that acute or chronic liver failure basically, as the name suggests, happens in someone who has either pre-existing chronic liver disease and or pre-existing liver cirrhosis. Um, as Andrew has mentioned, obviously it is difficult for us to tell, especially uh, on first presentation, let's say it's the patient's first ever presentation to healthcare, uh, whether it is there was a chronic liver disease uh, in the first place or not. Uh, generally, some differentiating signs that can help uh, to tell them apart would generally be the acuity of the development of symptoms. Uh, in uh, acute or chronic liver failure, if you take a detailed history, usually the patient has already had some manifestations of chronic liver disease or has some signs, has some uh, history of, for example, a chronic uh, alcohol dependence that might suggest that the patient already has some form of chronic liver disease. Either that or personal history of hepatitis B that was picked up on a routine health screening, for example, that in itself might also suggest that he already has some pre-existing chronic liver disease. But again, um, this is not something that you can say with 100% certainty, especially when the patient first touches down uh, in the hospital. In terms of their approaches and management, uh, they are thankfully uh, the contention between acute versus acute or chronic liver failure aside, in terms of management, they are actually approached in a very similar fashion uh, with the organ-specific treatment being the key, especially since multi-organ dysfunction and failure can occur in both acute liver failure as well as acute or chronic liver failure. Uh, the main differentiating factor between the two of them and the one that's uh, most important for me as a transplant physician is that typically uh, cases of true acute liver failure tend to qualify for priority listing on the transplant wait list, whereas those who have established cirrhosis or those with established chronic liver disease and are acute on chronic liver failure, it usually does not. Uh, we do have an exception for acute chronic liver failure uh, locally, but uh, there are certain criteria to meet, which not everybody, which not everybody uh, gets. Uh, and I'll also say that um, these uh, carve-out exceptions uh, also differ from healthcare system to healthcare system. So if you look at the American guidelines, they'll say that there's an exception for acute liver failure from Wilson's disease, which is theoretically a chronic liver disease, but it still lists these patients for priority listing. Um, sometimes if there's a flare of autoimmune hepatitis, they consider that acute liver failure as well for, for wait list prioritization. So again, you can see it's a very contentious topic where uh, different transplant centers have uh, different <laughs> rules and criteria for priority listing. So unfortunately, it's hard to give a one-size-fits-all answer. Uh, but again, philosophically, uh, it's generally the time course of whether there was a previous chronic liver illness. Uh, and uh, on the ground, when it comes to immediate management, um, they are actually fairly similar. Yes. Thank you very much for your time. As a medical student, my priority has always been trying to master the very basic approaches. And with that in mind, could I ask how you do conduct your history-taking and physical examination for such a patient? Okay, so uh, I think there are a few key factors. You still take a thorough uh, history from the patient, but the uh, particular aspects that we'll pay very close attention to, the ones that can make or break 
uh, basically our management of this patient, the first would actually be, because he, he presents with jaundice, but it's very important to uh, take note of when was the onset of jaundice first noticed, as that basically establishes the entire time course of the disease. Um, if they're accompanying friends or family members, that would be most helpful to also get an objective uh, overview or objective second opinion on the patient's overall cognitive status and mentation. As obviously, if the patient has, get, has gotten confused, uh, you need uh, some corroborating history as well. I will also pay special attention to the potential etiologies of uh, liver disease in this patient. Uh, again, I would ask for whether there's any uh, personal or family history of viral hepatitis as uh, in our local epidemiology, uh, hepatitis B is still uh, the most common cause of viral hepatitis and it is usually transmitted uh, as a, as a vertically. Um, I will also ask whether there has been any recent new uh, drug ingestions, uh, potentially suspecting uh, drug-induced liver injury. And finally, I would also ask for things like whether there's a history of a chronic alcohol uh, abuse or dependence, uh, as that might, again, uh, sway us more towards acute or chronic liver failure as opposed to acute liver failure. And during the physical examination itself, uh, we would still conduct a detailed abdominal examination. However, the main primary focus for me as a transplant physician would be to ascertain whether that is or is not hepatic encephalopathy. That would be the, 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 the key thing that I pay the most attention to during the physical examination. Uh, I would ask the patient to, if he can cooperate, I'll ask the patient to see whether there's any sign of asterixis. And more worryingly, I'll also see whether there's any sign of mental optundation uh, as well. Uh, it is also important uh, when uh, examining a patient to look for whether there's any stigmata of chronic liver disease. And you will also look for uh, whether there's any signs of decompensated liver cirrhosis, such as ascites, as this may help to differentiate acute liver failure from acute or chronic liver failure. Because generally, uh, acute liver failure typically uh, does not present with ascites for the sole exception of a butt chiari, whereas acute or chronic liver failure generally does present with ascites. So that is a small but important sign in the physical exam that can help tell us tell that apart. Well, so, how do you kickstart the workup for someone in this case? And what kind of blood tests and imaging should we order? Okay, so uh, nothing very uh, different from what you would normally order for a critically ill patient. So we start off by doing a full blood count, a full uh, renal panel uh, and liver panel as well as a full coagulation screen with the PT, PTT, R and R. And specifically, we also look uh, do the fibrinogen as well. Uh, primarily, we want to differentiate uh, the coagulopathy from acute liver failure from uh, DIC. Um, next, uh, because these patients are known to have metabolic disturbances, uh, if I'm suspecting a severe acute liver injury or acute liver failure, uh, we'll next go on to do an arterial blood gas, uh, serum lactate levels, as well as the serum ammonia levels as sometimes there can be a lactic acidosis or hyperammonemia already on presentation. And that would be my first uh, priority in terms of uh, risk stratification for this patient. Um, next, uh, so we can sort of classify our tests into risk stratification as well as uh, test for etiology. In terms of test for etiology, I would be doing um, urine and serum paracetamol levels as sometimes patients don't admit to having taken paracetamol. I'll also be doing a full serological screen for the hepatotrophic viral infections, um, such as hepatitis A, hepatitis B, and hepatitis E, 
uh, F or Epsilon, uh, which are all known to cause uh, acute uh, liver failure or acute liver injury. Uh, we will also do the autoimmune markers, such as uh, the anti-nuclear antibody and the anti-liver antibodies panel, such as the anti-M2, uh, anti-soluble liver antigen, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, in terms of imaging, uh, because again, they usually present hyperbilirubinemia, we will at least want uh, ultrasound of the abdomen to ensure that there's no biliary obstruction. And if there's any signs of a raised uh, total white cell count suggestive of infection, you go on to do a chest X-ray and probably a routine electrocardiogram, especially if you're thinking of a liver transplant operation sometime in the near future. Uh, if the patient's febrile, that would obviously include a full septic workup with blood cultures and urine cultures as well. Dr. Terence, if I may ask, you know, I've, I know you've gone through, you know, some of the workup that we do uh, to screen for hepatotrophic viruses as well as the autoimmune screen. Uh, in Singapore, could you share with us, you know, what are some of the more common causes of acute liver failure? So uh, our local epidemiology uh, is not very different uh, to the global causes of acute liver failure. So from a macro perspective, globally, viral hepatitis and drug-induced liver injury are basically the most common causes of acute liver failure. And this holds true uh, in our local setting as well, because our population does uh, have, uh, it, we are endemic for hepatitis B. Uh, it is far and away the most common cause of uh, viral hepatitis, and as well as the most common cause of acute liver failure in Singapore. Um, followed by a drug-induced liver injury as the next most common cause of acute liver failure. Um, we have had uh, reports of drug-induced liver injury resulting uh, in acute liver failure from the usual suspects such as paracetamol, but we've also had uh, uh, rare anecdotes like um, uh, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, traditional Chinese medications, we have seen cases before. And a very well-known celebrity case, there was uh, acute liver failure from a weight loss drug. So uh, drug-induced liver injury is uh, unfortunately also very common. Uh, very rare locally uh, would be uh, etiology such as uh, chronic uh, alcoholism or uh, autoimmune hepatitis. This tends to be extremely rare uh, in our local setting. So I can't help but just make this comment. So Terence again didn't take the easy way out. He didn't take any weight loss drug to get to where he is. Because <laughs> yes. he knows the dangers of these drugs causing acute liver failure. Right. Yeah, I already, I already had raised transaminases when I did my blood. So uh, that was an option. <laughs> okay, so we'll move on to the next uh, part of the case. The patient's mental state deteriorates overnight and the patient is intubated and transferred to the medical ICU. He also starts to have mucosal bleeding in his oral cavity. Uh, what are we concerned about at this moment in such a situation? So uh, again, from a macro perspective, the main causes of death uh, globally uh, in acute liver failure, uh, multi-organ failure, as well as sepsis. And because of that, uh, I've, uh, it is very important for us to work closely with our intensive care colleagues. Uh, it's very important to have a good multidisciplinary approach with uh, excellent critical care management, as well as organ-specific therapies, uh, which I will expound on later, along with um, on first deterioration, broad empirical antimicrobial coverage as he has just recently deteriorated. So uh, a full septic workup should be performed at this juncture if not already done. And um, the managing hepatology team needs to work closely with the critical care uh, team to uh, work on a holistic care plan for this patient. 
Um, hi, Dr. Terence. Uh, just wondering if the etiology is not clear at the beginning, um, what are the initial management plans? So sometimes we are faced with this issue where we do not have a clear treatable etiology even after the first round of investigations. Either that or if the patient deteriorates quickly enough, sometimes the initial investigations might not have even come out. Uh, but we can focus on things that are of benefit for any etiology of acute liver failure. So an interesting uh, development in recent years is the use of uh, IV intravenous and acetylcysteine even for non-paracetamol-related acute liver failure, as we have seen benefits in both survival, uh, not just a transplant-free survival, but also post-transplant survival with the use of IV and acetylcysteine. So you see most hepatologists in Singapore General Hospital ordering that for patients with acute liver failure. Um, then again, from a macro perspective, um, uh, initial management plans would again be organ-directed. More specifically, uh, hemodynamically, we would want to maintain euvolemia. Um, generally, it's a hyperdynamic circulation and they don't do well with either hypo or hypervolemia. We would want to give vasopressors as necessary. And the preference usually in these patients is for vasoconstrictors such as norepinephrine as they tend to be peripherally vasodilated, uh, similar to sepsis. Uh, uh, broadly speaking, uh, biochemical abnormalities that are very common would be that of hypoglycemia as well as hyponatremia, and they both need to be corrected, but not overcorrected. Uh, we also need to pay special attention to the patient's kidney function. There's, there's, obvious, there's a very, very often times an accompanying acute uh, kidney injury, most likely from hepatorenal syndrome, uh, and we need an early institution of uh, renal replacement therapy if it proves necessary to, to correct uh, hyponatremia, if it's refractory, fluid balance, metabolic acidosis, or even hyperammonemia. And lastly, even though I did mention that uh, empiric antibiotics should be first started on first deterioration, uh, we should go by culture-directed therapy to guide our antimicrobial therapy in the subsequent days after that, as there has been no benefit, uh, survival benefits shown for just purely prophylactic antibiotics or antifungals. So once uh, the initial cultures come back negative, you might consider stopping antibiotics if they are unrevealing. So Terence, you may ask, um, when you're managing one of these uh, sick patients in the, in the ICU, um, how, how else do they differ from the usual uh, ICU patient? Let's say you're just dealing with a, a sepsis and someone who doesn't have any liver issues uh, versus someone who has acute liver failure and then develops sepsis. Are, are there major differences in the way you'll manage them? I think there are two main considerations, especially for patients with acute liver failure. Um, the first is actually that of um, their mental status as well as re uh, possibility of raised intracranial pressure. Um, so there are uh, some risk factors for patients to develop raised intracranial pressure. Uh, it tends to happen more in patients with hyperacute or acute uh, liver failure when they are young. Um, a very raised ammonia level of about 150 to 200 that does not improve. It's also a, a poor prognostic factor for raised intracranial pressure, intracranial pressure, as well as a high dependence on the vasopressor support. Uh, there has been a move to transcranial Doppler being the first uh, way of screening for raised intracranial pressure. It's a very useful non-invasive monitoring tool. However, if uh, it is it is equivocal and the, the risk factors are present, we might even consider an invasive uh, intracranial pressure monitoring uh, catheter. 
and it does help to guide therapy with hypertonic saline or mannitol. The main reason why we're so focused on the brain is that if um, we lose the patient's brain, if there's irreversible uh, brain damage or function, that in itself is unfortunately an absolute contraindication to a life-saving liver transplant. So the second consideration, apart from the patient's mentation and intracranial pressure, would be to think of whether the patient is a liver transplant candidate. And if he is, if he's a good candidate for liver transplant, if it's a correctable etiology of uh, liver failure with liver transplantation, the next priority would be to uh, urgently work towards uh, getting him on the liver transplant wait list and maybe even working towards a priority listing for the patient. I will also state that uh, this is a common question that comes up in the ICU, especially when we look at their coagulation panel, um, that you would see that their protrombin time in the international normalized ratio is extremely high. However, it is an interesting phenomenon that we are only actually measuring one part of the coagulation cascade with the protrombin time and the INR. And in studies where they actually look at the clotting status of these acute liver failure patients, despite the numbers being extremely ugly, most patients are actually not at increased risk of bleeding. I say again, despite the extremely elevated protrombin time and INR, most are actually not at increased risk of bleeding, and some are actually conversely hypercoagulable. This is because there is a reduction in terms of the other side of the coagulation cascade as well. So even though we measure the clotting factors, we don't measure uh, the factors that promote fibrinolysis, such as uh, antitrombin 3, and these can drop in acute liver failure as well. So when in doubt, what would be more helpful rather than a static measure of coagulation, such as a prothrombin time, would be something like a thromboelastography, where we use it to assess the patient's true coagulation status. For those who are not familiar, uh, thromboelastography basically takes the patient's blood, we drop it into a spinning cup, and we watch it clot in real time. Uh, with, there's a needle in the middle of the spinning cup that helps to look at how the clot is forming, look at the sheer uh, stress of the clot. And this helps us precisely target whether the patient is truly uh, at risk of bleeding, is he hypercoagulable or is he somewhere in the middle? Um, because uh, prof, uh, these biochemical markers are not very helpful unless you do a proper thromboelastography, uh, prophylactic correction of uh, coagulopathy or platelet levels is actually not necessary in these patients in contrast to most ICU patients where if you see coagulopathy, you just go ahead and correct. And Dr. Terence, when do we start or when should we start thinking about transplant? We are blessed by being a fairly small country. <laughs> you can drive from one end of the country from uh, in about 45 minutes and therefore you any, any patient is never too far away from a transplant center. Uh, but even uh, it's even more important in, in uh, a healthcare system that's a bit more widespread to start uh, making an early consideration for liver transplant, uh, even when the patient is at the stage of a severe acute liver injury. Again, INR more than 1.5 and hyperbilirubinemia, even at that juncture before the development of hepatic encephalopathy, uh, it should already be a consideration to have an early referral to a liver transplant service and ideally, if possible, the patient should be trans uh, transferred to a transplant center for further monitoring. Because patients can deteriorate very rapidly, uh, the further apart 
in terms of geography and healthcare system is, I feel the more important is for early escalation, early transfer of these patients to a transplant center. Uh, you, I should not uh, wait for them to develop uh, acute, uh, or you should not wait for them to develop hepatic encephalopathy before that transfer is actually uh, done. In terms of who are candidates for transplant, uh, usually we look at it from the other way in that everybody hopefully is a candidate for liver transplantation unless they fulfill certain contraindications, um, poor prognostic factors that have been shown to result in a lower transplant, a post-transplant survival would be such as a market extrahepatic organ failure. So in the patient which, whose every other organ is shutting down, obviously they tend not to do well. Um, those who have a subacute presentation of acute liver failure typically don't do well without a transplant and you want to consider transplanting them quickly. And those who you just don't have a known etiology of acute liver failure, again, those tend not to do well. And those you would want to transplant. There are also other uh, biochemical prognostic criteria for you to look at who is the who are the high-risk uh, patients. I'm sure everyone has heard of the King's College criteria or the Clichy criteria that's used in Europe. And even the MEL score has been repurposed to identify such high-risk patients. However, because they all have varying sensitivities and specificities, there is no universally adopted system um, globally. Yeah. So uh, I was mentioning contraindications, and generally we would look for uh, secondary causes of acute liver failure, which are, will not be solved or will not be helped with a liver transplant. So such as infiltrative disease from lymphoma or other malignancies such as breast cancer. If there's ischemic hepatitis, where the patient already has uh, a poor cardiac output resulting in ischemic hepatitis, obviously they will not do well. Um, hemophagocytic syndrome can also result in acute liver failure. And very rarely infections such as malaria can also result in secondary acute liver failure. Um, a liver transplant has been tried and has been shown to have extremely poor outcomes in these scenarios. So we would not uh, pursue a liver transplant for these patients. And again, as mentioned just now, um, Something that is always uh, very disheartening is when the patient develops signs of irreversible brain injury. So if, for example, the pupils become uh, fixed, uh, loss of spontaneous ventilation, and if you have neuroimaging, you see start seeing uncle herniation, um, that unfortunately is not absolute contraindication to liver transplant. Hi, Dr. Terence. I was wondering which etiologies tend to do well for acute liver failure, and is there a reason why? So generally, uh, the if you're talking about acute liver failure, the etiology that stands out the most <laughs> would be that of paracetamol. Uh, Paracetamol-related acute liver failure tends to have a better outcome as compared to every other etiology of acute liver failure. And that's why you can see the King's College criteria actually distinctly splits them into two separate groups of paracetamol-related acute liver failure and non-paracetamol-related acute liver failure. Generally, because paracetamol-related acute failure is a single inciting event, uh, after which, if the patient's uh, underlying comorbids are not uh, too great, for example, it's, if it's a young, healthy patient, you generally have a pretty good uh, transplant fee survival rate. Um, so in terms of etiologies, that would be uh, the main uh, etiology that tends to do a little bit better. Uh, everything else, unfortunately, uh, doesn't have that great rate of transplant fee survival. In terms of presentation, in terms of what kinds of patients tend to do better as well, there is an, uh, a classification system where we look at the time of onset from, uh, of hepatic encephalopathy from the first time of onset to jaundice. 
And that helps us tell apart hyperacute liver failure, which is the first one to seven days, acute liver failure, which is um, eight to 28 days, uh, where you get hepatic encephalopathy after jaundice, and subacute liver failure, uh, which is anything after 28 days. Generally, the hyperacute presentation tends to do better than the acute presentation. And the subacute, and the subacute unfortunately, has the worst outcome, as I've uh, previously alluded to, with regards to those patients who are at high risk. So the patient has been referred to the transplant service, but no liver is available at the moment. The ICU team starts uh, to ask about the role of plasma exchange therapy, such as MARS. Um, so maybe Dr. Terence can share with us what is MARS and why is it relevant for acute liver failure? Okay, so uh, MARS stands for the Molecular Adsorbent and Recirculating System. And you can think of it as a form of uh, liver dialysis. It is an artificial liver support device that generally consists of an additional albumin circuit that we will add in to uh, add on to a, a continuous renal replacement therapy machine. Um, the main problem with these extracorporeal artificial liver support devices is that their eventual outcomes have not been great. Uh, so uh, we're talking about Mars, we're talking about Prometheus, um, and there are other bioartificial uh, liver support devices that have been studied. And what has come out quite clear is that they do improve hepatic encephalopathy, but unfortunately there is no overall benefit on mortality and they do come with significant risks. Um, in uh, Singapore General Hospital, we have used the MAS system for patients with acute liver failure before, but generally what tends to happen is that uh, we manage to tie them over for a time, but because a donor organ doesn't come in time, they generally run into complications from uh, Mars and they uh, pass away within about a week or so after starting Mars. Something that's a little bit, uh, has shown a little bit more promise is plasma exchange in itself. So this is not quite a liver, artificial liver support device. Rather, it is just exchanging uh, uh, plasma volumes of the patient's own plasma for uh, a plasma from donors. And uh, unlike MARS, it has actually shown a mortality benefit in patients with acute liver failure who did not undergo transplantation, specifically uh, for those uh, patients who had acute liver failure from hepatitis B uh, infection or acute hepatitis B flare. Uh, and thus, uh, in recent times, we have actually moved away from MARS and to plasma exchange uh, in our center as a whole. However, patients for plasma exchange do still need to be selected carefully. Uh, and um, the, generally, the transplant team uh, will make the final call uh, in conjunction with the renal physicians who are supporting us at plasma exchange as to which patients are suitable for uh, this uh, therapy. So Terence, I'd like to ask you a question on nutrition because, as you know, the, the queen of nutrition in our department, <laughs> Dr. Annalisa, is going to give us grief if, if we don't address this. But um, liver failure patients, this, 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 I'm not sure it's a myth, but people tend to be very afraid of giving them protein um, because they say it will precipitate the encephalopathy and so on. But yet these are patients who are sick, right? And they probably do need protein. So what is actually the approach for nutrition when it comes to these patients? I have gone to look at a, a, a acute liver failure specific literature with regards to nutrition. And the short answer is there isn't much, if any, data for nutrition and acute liver failure per se. 
As such, um, the latest uh, Aspen guidelines uh, do actually recommend treating acute liver failure uh, as per any other critically ill patient known to have an increased uh, resting energy expenditure. Uh, and uh, it is highly recommended that we try to uh, either measure their resting energy expenditure with indirect calorimetry or failing that uh, predicted by equations uh, and applying a suitable correction factor. Um, broadly speaking, um, in, again, as for all critically ill ICU patients, we aim to be hypocaloric in the first three days where they are fed at a caloric deficit, roughly about 70 to 80% of their estimated requirements, followed by an isocaloric feeding uh, after about three days or so. This has been shown to have a greater, better outcomes in terms of survival. And as Andrew, you have rightly pointed out, um, it is a myth that these patients need to be given a uh, low-protein diet. Uh, Patients with acute liver disease and even those with uh, liver cirrhosis are already known to be in sort of a hypercatabolic state where there is an increased rate of uh, protein turnover and an increased rate of lean muscle uh, breakdown. And as such, they can be given a normal protein intake of roughly about 1.2 to 1.5 grams per kilogram per day uh, with no uh, adverse effects on hepatic encephalopathy, for example, which is the usual worry. So that uh, myth has been thoroughly debunked by uh, data. And if you give a patient a low-protein diet, it's actually overall harmful to them uh, in the long run. We've gone through the approach to a patient with acute liver failure and briefly talked about the difference between acute liver failure as well as acute and chronic liver failure. We've also briefly touched on the management of um, such a patient. So uh, at this point, maybe we would like to invite Dr. Terence to give us some take-home points when dealing with patients with acute liver failure. Okay, so the first would be the definition of acute liver failure as I feel that's something important that uh, healthcare... Uh, that doctors of every level should try to remember. Um, so acute liver failure is basically defined as the development of hepatic encephalopathy in a patient with severe acute liver injury, which manifests as an RNR of more than 1.5 and hyperbilirubinemia. So that's number one. What is the definition of acute liver failure? Secondly, when you do have a patient with acute liver failure, uh, we do need to screen very hard for treatable causes of acute liver failure. As sometimes disease-specific therapies can make the difference between the patient needing a liver transplant or not. So these would be things like paracetamol toxicity, where you can give uh, intravenous N-acetylcysteine as an antidote. Um, hepatitis B has a specific antiviral. And sometimes even something like a uh, herpes simplex virus, hepatitis also has a disease-specific uh, treatment as well. So that would be number two. Lastly, um, if there is a patient with severe acute liver injury and the patient starts developing some signs of augmentation that are not quite yet hepatic encephalopathy, you would still want to refer early to a liver transplant center and get the process rolling. Um, as when we receive the patient in a liver transplant center, every day is important to us. Um, the earlier we can get the patient on the national wait list and get him priority listed, um, the higher the chances of a life-saving liver transplant and the better the odds of this overall survival. So that would be number three, um, refer early to a liver transplant center if in doubt. Okay, great. So firstly, I'd like to thank uh, Terence for coming on to our show and giving us much insight into this topic of acute liver failure, which is challenging for many of our uh, uh, listeners who are involved in managing these patients. So you can refer to some of our old episodes. I think we, we did cover a bit on uh, approach to abnormal liver function uh, tests uh, in our earliest in our first season 
Uh, and so probably a good episode to correlate with the ones that we've just heard today. So hope all the listeners enjoyed conversation and learned as much as we did. Um, for those of you who are interested to check out our uh, infographics and our show notes, you, you can just Google Linktree, so L-I-N-K-T-R-E-E, and type S-G-H guts, and two different words, and it should appear as one of the first sets of results. Uh, you can leave comments, feedback, whatever you want in, the, in those uh, sources as well. And until next time, everyone take care and stay safe.